This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Constancia Malashenska speaks with Mitchell Joachim, co-founder and director of research at Terraform One. This conversation was recorded in December 2019. Hi, Mitch. So great to have you with us today. Thank you. Super great to uh, be here and and in this uh, conversation. Awesome. So I just wanted to start out by saying that I came to know your work uh, in a Principles of Sustainable Management class, which was taught uh, by Hunter Lovins in the Bard MB program. And the class focused on climate crisis solutions and your grown cities were one of the examples. So I just really love the context in which I got to know about your ecological design. Uh, but your work is very different from what's out there, uh, but it has been re- recognized and awarded many times. And you have been the recipient of fellowships. You were uh, selected by Rolling Stone for the 100 people who are changing America, which is fantastic. And your design work has been exhibited at MoMA and the Venice um, Biennial, and those really goes on and on. But I wanted to ask, what is your background and what led you to do this type of groundbreaking work? Well, thank you for that. It's actually uh, really great to hear that someone out there is, is uh, involved in teaching or at least showing some case studies that we worked on in a classroom setting. That's really great. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, and certainly Hunter Lovins, uh superhero um, and uh, an inspiration to so many of us. And I think, um, you know, I got into this work um geez there's a number of reasons why i've got into it but i i would say the biggest one is i've got two young daughters and the world that they're about to inherit is not really acceptable and they're too young to do anything about it and i think that my generation and i'd say uh, the generation younger is hell-bent on stopping this kind of uh these 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 kinds of idiotic practices that we're finding that are, you know, essentially destroying this planet. And this has been going on for as long as I can remember. Uh, And I'm just tired. So I think now it's about getting even more radical and and tackling the problem at its core. Uh, But my my kind of professional background is I'm an architect and I'm an urban designer. Uh, I run a 501c3 nonprofit called Terraform One in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. We take on wicked problems. Our kind of single overriding predicate is design against extinction. We're all complicit somehow in wiping out these kinds of uh, uh, all types of animals on this planet. Every seven minutes, we're losing another bird, or fish, insect, you name it. Um, they're disappearing forever. Mm-hmm. And that's been going on since the 70s. And I believe the statistics which change depending on where you source them, it's roughly 50 to 60% of all life since the 70s is uh, disappeared forever. So uh, how can this continue? It's, uh, it's just something that's absolutely unacceptable. So as architects, I think we're really 
skilled at producing a narrative to help us choreograph the way out of this very wicked problem that we've set for ourselves. That involves global economies, involves uh, materials and engineering, involves uh, certainly the entire built environment and infrastructure. There's so many, including human behaviors and, and just everyday practices. These are, these are things that um, are grand challenges, but our group is working and there are many others uh, towards you know, uh, stopping this. I feel like every day we, we save the planet um, and then it, you know, wake up in the morning again, it's everything turned to garbage. So it's, it seems like a, a nonstop effort, similar to painting a watercolor in a stream. But um, um, we're, we think that um, there's been progress. And we don't have a choice, right? According to the United Nations, we have 10 years to get it together before we have that permanent rise in average global temperature. And uh, the coral reefs will disappear, will lose most forms of aqueous life. So uh, if there's ever an emergency and a crisis, we've got one now. And, and um, I'm there and same with the team, we're there to, to kind of make a difference, to make a big impact. No, that's fantastic to hear. And just so many great um, snippets. And the talk, you know, I love how we talk about the different narrative uh, and how right now it does seem like a watercolor in a stream. But uh, we'd love to hear more about your work. But before we dive in, I wanted to bring up the name of the your or your company, so Terraform One. And I found that One stands for Open Network Ecology. And I was wondering if you could break that down for us. Yeah, we, we just thought that... Um... Terraform one, one is the number, meaning that we're all together working as one. And many other groups have used one for similar kinds of designations. It's, it's not, we, we, we are a collective, which sounds a bit Marxist, but uh, we move together in this kind of format that means we trade ideas, we're interdisciplinary in, in our thinking and our practice. We don't believe in, in separate or desperate or disparate forms of, of uh, operation or modality. We have to kind of retool our instrumentation, our projects and our skill sets so that it does make sense under a single rubric. The, the idea of oneness is, is incredibly important to us. And uh, it's also pretty cool to say in a name and separates us from anybody else who's doing something like Terraform because if it's we spell it with an E, which is different than the normal spelling of it, which means sort of like remake the earth, uh, usually doing that on Mars or something like this. Mm -hmm. But the way we spell it, terraform, it's actually, uh, it means uh, inside there is reformation or the word reform. So we don't need to remake the earth. We need to reform what we've already been given. Uh, and we need, to, we need to change our agenda instead of replicating you know, a new planet someplace else from scratch, we actually need to fix the one that we screwed up here. So I think yeah. that's the difference. The open network ecology is uh, meaning that we trade ideas in a kind of a, an ecosystem of disciplines and fields. And those are as fluid as possible. And we'll do our best to kind of get it down to a common denominator so that we do work on a project of different teams that are involved, whether it's an entomologist, a landscape architect, a race car driver, a I don't know, a butcher, all of us somehow have a singular language. And in that ecosystem, we could work towards changing our neighborhoods or changing our ideas about cities. That's fantastic. No, that's fantastic to hear. And just so many great um, snippets. And the talk, you know, I love how we talk about the different narrative 
uh, and how right now it does seem like a watercolor in a stream. But uh, we'd love to hear more about your work. But before we dive in, I wanted to bring up the name of the your or your company, so Terraform One. And I found that One stands for Open Network Ecology. And I was wondering if you could break that down for us. Yeah, we we just thought that. Um... Terraform one, one is the number, meaning that we're all together working as one. And many other groups have used one for similar kinds of designations. It's it's not, we, we, we are a collective, which sounds a bit Marxist, but uh, we move together in this kind of format that means we trade ideas, we're interdisciplinary in, in our thinking and our practice. We don't believe in, in separate or desperate or disparate forms of, of uh, operation or modality. We have to kind of retool our instrumentation, our projects and our skill sets so that it does make sense under a single rubric. The, the idea of oneness is, is incredibly important to us. And uh, it's also pretty cool to say in a name and separates us from anybody else who's doing something like Terraform because if it's we spell it with an E, which is different than the normal spelling of it, which means sort of like remake the earth, uh, usually doing that on Mars or something like this. Mm -hmm. But the way we spell it, terraform, it's actually, uh, it means uh, inside there is reformation or the word reform. So we don't need to remake the earth. We need to reform what we've already been given. Uh, and we need, to, we need to change our agenda instead of replicating you know, a new planet someplace else from scratch, we actually need to fix the one that we screwed up here. So I think yeah. that's the difference. The open network ecology is uh, meaning that we trade ideas in a kind of a, an ecosystem of disciplines and fields. And those are as fluid as possible. And we'll do our best to kind of get it down to a common denominator so that we do work on a project of different teams that are involved, whether it's an entomologist, a landscape architect, a race car driver, a I don't know, a butcher, all of us somehow have a singular language. And in that ecosystem, we could work towards changing our neighborhoods or changing our ideas about cities. That's fantastic. And I love how you're bringing it back from this post-Earth thinking, a lot of which we're hearing these days. Uh, I love bringing it back to, to you know, planet A. Um, so so yeah, you are yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, so you are an architecture and urban design consultancy, and you are at the same time a nonprofit. So can you tell us uh, more about that in the context of your services and your clients? Yeah. So um, I, we, we don't typically have regular clients. In a lot of cases, our clients happen to be ourselves. Um, our own group comes and chooses its own research project, and we'll work on that for a few years. Uh, we'll bring in sponsors. Uh, we'll go for grants, we'll be involved in gallery shows or major museums, uh, but it's not necessarily a, a kind of a client comes in and says, can you save the world? And we go, what part? And then they say this part and we do a job. It's, a, it's, it's not that at all. It's usually clients will come in and kind of patrons to support an endeavor that might have some alignment to their own business practice. But in general, we're, we're not really concerned about... Um, being everyday architects and changing the brick color on a whim based on what a developer needs or doesn't. It's just not that kind of work. We're doing long-term engagements and research that for the most part involve living organisms and that add to what we call socio-ecological design thinking. 
that's a, another kind of notch above sustainability in my opinion, but we, we are, we are, we are not really out there to just work for one individual or one institution or one group. In fact, in many cases, we're working for things that don't even have a voice. Uh, the Monarch Butterfly is one recent project, which is at the edge of extinction. It's, it's, um, there, it's a difficult to say because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is, is doing a report, uh, an update on how bad it is with their declining population. But these are creatures that uh, became our client, and we're working very hard to produce sanctuaries for them to survive. So if you really want to say what our client is, it's, it's usually the, uh, some kind of uh, troubled species that's out there, not, not humans with uh, big bank accounts. I obviously absolutely love that because it really extends this idea of oneness to, you know, the entire biosphere and you work in cities. Uh, and I think that, you know, we all know that we're pretty divorced from or tend to be pretty divorced from nature in that uh, context. So speaking of which, you know, one of your most watched videos is a TED talk on growing buildings or growing even entire villages. So uh, how do you see your industry and the society at large, I would say, shifting from, as you put it, architecture to biology? So from the built environment to the grown environment, considering that really urbanity to date is largely equaled progress as eradication of, of these natural systems. So what will it take to make that leap? What would it take to get to a kind of a culture of growing buildings or, or, or a kind of a biological precursor to everything that we're doing as opposed to an industrial precursor? I think what it's honestly going to take is going to be, um, it's going to be something that's pretty violent and pretty disruptive and it's going to be driven by our climate and the weather. It's most likely going to be a big storm or a flood. Uh, and it's going to be at such a scale that we will find it no longer acceptable to be in the way we practice today. I mean, if the fires in California aren't enough, if the oil spill in the Gulf wasn't enough, if uh, Hurricane Sandy and Katrina, and I don't remember what was the name of it in Texas, but if those massive floods were not enough, I, I don't know what it is, but something that it will really put the fear of um, nature inside us all and get us to change our tune and produce something that is uh, that has a strong association and relationship with the Earth's metabolism, as opposed to these uh, industrial systems that are uh, the opposite and, and certainly uh, poisonous on by many accounts. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think I, the short answer is, and Paul Gilding has said this, former CEO of Greenpeace, it's just some big vicious crisis is probably what's going to take to get everyone to change, change their attitudes and get on board with producing civilization 2.0. Mm -hmm. Because without that impetus, it's, it's a slow going process and people can't really see the water, you know, the, the kind of the water we're, we're boiling in. We just don't perceive it. So we need something active and, and that produces an enormous amount of feel, uh, sorry, not feel, for, uh, fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that might be a, a kind of a modeling way of approaching it. And, um, you know, I don't subscribe to doomsaying, et cetera, but I, it's, you know, people like you know, other things like sports or I don't know, whatever, just not they have their job. They just don't have an interest in the environment. Their bandwidth is so limited. 
So at this point, I think the environment is screaming for us to change our ways. Mm-hmm. And at some point, it's going to explode. Could you actually walk us through a grown village? Could we see what that sounds like, feels like, looks like? Yeah. Well, you know, today to make a home, you essentially take some, you know, a lot of machinery and, and some uh, some skilled people, loggers, and you, you go into a forest that's usually on some level of kind of a conservation forest, but there's problems with that. And these people use power tools and, and heavy machines to cut down trees and take them out of the forest to go to a lumber mill where they are um, reduced into buildable components for buildings of different sizes and lengths. And those get trucked to a job site where they are assembled by a whole new set of kind of carpenters and people that make it into a suburban housing project of some kind. And then it's occupied by a family. And uh, probably 150 years, more or less, it really starts to uh, need you know, a complete change. Certainly in some of the major infrastructural components like the heating and, natural vent- heating and ventilation and, and uh, air conditioning, those things have to go a lot quicker. So as we sort of begin this retooling house by house, suburb by suburb, we realize it's not enough. It's not fast enough. It's not enough of a change. And there's not a lot of people onboarding with it. And um, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I, I think that a crisis would get the fire under our ass so that we do make the change. But it's also, we haven't quite hit it with the kind of this, the ups, not upcycling, but upcycling is a part of it, but the, the change of scale we need to make from doing one simple tissue box holder made of recycled components or whatever they are, upcycled components to actually thinking about everything within our food stream, waste stream, and certainly product streams that are designed for no life ending situation. That it's always, a, as Bill McDonough said, a cradle to cradle cyclical mm-hmm. process. Right. Though the one thing that um, you know gives me some optimism is that you know I've also I work with plants uh, and I find that. It's there is this connection that we have to nature that I think is pretty deep in our DNA uh, that they do give us, um, you know, positive feelings when we're immersed in, you know, in a park or a forest uh, or even just kind of observe some nature. There is some, you know, there's healing that comes from that um, and regeneration. So uh, perhaps if not the drastic scenario, then the one, you know, where you're sort of uh, chipping away at the, at the resistance or even, you know, ignorance at how we, how can we do things differently? So that actually leads me to, this is a nice segue to the next uh, question that I had, yes. which is yeah. about design for, uh, against extinction. So uh, you call your biodesign, right? Design against extinction. And that gives it a lot of urgency and I think especially around implementation. So I just recently saw your piece of the Cooper Hewitt design triennial. So it's a building facade oh, wow. for those that you know that, yeah, that doubles as a monarch butterfly sanctuary and you can look it up and it's wonderful and go see it if, uh, if you can here in New York city. But um, so that's a beautiful um, concept and it's obviously that we have a, a, a sort of I don't know if you would call it a prototype, but right, but a but a but a mock-up of what it would look like in a, on a smaller scale. And I'm interested in the intersection of that innovation 
that you can clearly create, you know, in 3D print and, um, and, and implementation, for example, in, in a city like New York. How would we do? How would we do this kind of? Can we make it happen, like on a, you know, on a, on a, on, on a corner in, in Manhattan? Yeah, Can yeah. I mean, part, so we we, we did uh, our research project was um, on monarchs. It was over two years. Involved uh, folks in entomology. It invokes. It involved people in chemistry. It involved uh, specialists in material science. We engineered a, a type of concrete that sequesters fly ash. It's also got a, a very low embodied energy value compared to other kinds of concrete. It's got a uh, system that helps absorb carbon uh, as another kind of element to it. Uh, it's really lightweight, it's structural, it's fireproof, and the geometry is articulated to deal with the life cycle of this precious butterfly, this charismatic monarch. And it thinks of things such as mud baths or, or areas for, uh, you know, fungi and mosses, that, uh, other zones for respite and areas for uh, caterpillar activity. So we, we really designed not only the material itself, but the geometry, the form of this kind of concrete to be uh, uh, assembled in a modular fashion and go on the sides of buildings so that we create this vertical sanctuary so monarchs are just given a chance to survive. It is a semi-porous system, so they don't stay there forever. They can fly around and rewild parts of New York, but it's, it's meant to be accessible and then safe, like a way station, for butterflies to just get a moment to lay some eggs, to eat uh, some food, or to pollinate some uh, you know, flowers, and then uh, go about their lives. And right now, we just have nothing like that. And building habitat for monarchs is one of the major initiatives in this in the Butterfly Conservation Society in North America. Mm -hmm. We've just ripped them out everywhere. So the idea we introduce it into a city, especially a city where monarchs are native, uh, we create this kind of uh, biodiverse uh, environment. Uh, it's it's giving it's given uh, monarchs a, you know a chance as well as all other hosts of organisms other flora and fauna that share and that kind of advantage. We don't measure biodiversity as architects or planners. I think something like if you take all of the paint by the number systems between Asia, Europe and the United States, things like LEED or Energy Star, Living Building Challenge, uh, BREAM, like these, these paint by the number solutions, which turned out to be very promising uh, give less if you add them all together, including well certification, wellness, uh, less than 5% from all of them uh, goes towards any points uh, for doing good for biodiversity. And if anything, we should probably maybe make it 90% of the points you get is saving biodiversity. So it's, it's the opposite. Uh, and I think that's a big problem. Some of these groups are changing their language and rethinking their point systems so that Developers and people creating something are encouraged uh, to to uh, think about how to implement biodiversity in their buildings, but it's still a very very tricky thing to do as opposed to buying some solar panels, which just seems to you know seem like you checked off that green box and you can move on. Yeah, there's small steps, but they're they're too minuscule minuscule at this point to to yeah. get us where we need to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Is there another project that your studio is working on right now that you'd like to share about? Yeah, yeah, we're doing a brand new one. I'll share that with you. It's, awesome. it's for the Shenzhen uh, Biennale in China. And it's also for the city of Camden, which is one of the most blighted neighborhoods it's outside of Philly. You'll find in the U.S. even more so than uh, uh, than Detroit, although uh, people of Detroit probably don't really want to hear that, and I understand. Uh, but what we've done is we have looked at a piece of science that works fairly well, and that's mealworms and Amazonian mealworms, actually, to be more precise, these superworms that eat styrofoam. They eat uh, e-waste, so materials that your microwave oven was shipped in, refrigerator, stereo, stereo speakers, computer components. It all comes in styrofoam, and styrofoam is not recyclable. Most cities don't have a program for it. It's not even worth it because it's too bulky, too lightweight, and when it, it gets um, sort of recycled anyway, it's just not enough material to be useful. So the cost doesn't work. So what we found out is that these mealworms eat styrofoam. And they do it, they create a frass, they eat their frass, and then they uh, eventually turn into beetles, which get eaten by birds. And what remains of the styrofoam is pretty amazing. It is simply a, uh, a compostable material that you can use in your garden, which is pretty fantastic. So Terraform's been working on these hypercubes that, um, that allow you to take that styrofoam and, and then... Uh, and, and certainly put them in public areas in these large digesters. That's what our hypercube is. And watch in a very kind of public way the spectacle of tens of thousands of mealworms eating your e-waste. So uh, we, we actually are really happy with this, uh, this newer project, which is a combination of thinking about urban refuse systems and waste management and recyclability. And then, of course, the live organism being the star. Uh, the mealworms themselves doing, you know, doing all the effort. And of course, mealworms, like I said, being beetles and then eaten by birds. They, so nothing goes to waste. Yeah, nothing does in nature. That's fantastic. I have two more questions for you. So these are two questions that we ask all of our guests on this podcast. And the first one is, what do you see as the biggest sustainability challenge we have to take on in 2020? And I hesitated because I'm thinking maybe regeneration in your case and not just sustainability, but feel free to answer however you see fit. Well, I mean, you know, McDonough and others are saying that sustainability isn't really the best word to use. It just means sort of surviving or getting by. And, no, and you, the biggest challenge is how can we do this where it's a everyone wins? <laughs> and that's, mm -hmm. that's a lot tougher of a, of a goal, but that's the right one. We don't need to remake, um, you know, Gillette Mach 5 razors, especially when they're quadruply packaged and uh, shaving your face. While that's important, it, it seems a little superfluous to use something that's devastating to our environment just so you can have less nicks on your face. Of course, I agree with that. That's the problem. That is the hurdle. I do not want my face to be nicked. At all. I don't want to bleed. I want to walk around with a napkin. And if I use some like eco blade that's made out of God knows what, um, it'll, it seems to almost never work the same. It's not the same quality, functionality, or performance. And it's probably more expensive than Gillette Mach 5. 
So it's it's this kind of problem that we've got to tackle. And, and that comes into understanding materials and their assembly, then having the right people who can work and help you craft these things. It's not it's not a walk in the park. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Is, is that answering the question? Would you say? Yeah, no, and I really love the sentiment of, of sentiment of you know how do we get to a place where everyone wins, right? Is that how you, mm -hmm. how you put it? I think yeah, where yeah. it's it's very close to this you know thinking. We well, have we got to we got we got to make a razor that does exactly what the you know the existing razors do, uh, except for everything in the undergrid of how it's constructed, distributed, packaged. And eventually at the point of purchase at the marketplace, uh, it's cheaper and doesn't really need to say it's green or not. Just everything was reconsidered so that it makes sense to the planet. And any company that's not doing those exercises now are in big trouble. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, that design thinking um, is definitely something that you're, yeah, putting forward here in tackling these challenges. So. Um, yeah, so the, the final question then, what do you see as the biggest challenge in your day-to-day -day work in sustainability? Yeah. Um, the biggest challenge is, hmm. I mean, I, I think that there are so many challenges that's I, I guess in education, of the rest of this um, planet, the people that who are not in the know. Perhaps many of those people voted for Trump. I think education is just the most egalitarian, the, the most concentrated, the best possible argument that one could make um, that people can really rationalize it for themselves and think about what they're hearing and what's been said to them over the years is actually crucial to see them recognize that. Right now, it just doesn't fit toys, which is, you know, I don't know. I have to change that. It's not all about the toys. Well, then, on that note, it's really fantastic that we were able to speak with you and uh, convey, you know, your knowledge and your, your angle on, on these challenges to our listeners because that is a form of education. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. For additional information about Terraform One and to see more of Mitchell's work, visit terraform.org. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, August 14th. We'll be speaking with Eric Adams, the borough president of Brooklyn, New York. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.